Welcome to Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and hope you enjoy this edition of Bolin's Alley. And you can find out more about us at alleninvestments.com. And those of you that have heard before have heard a couple of times on my podcast, we've talked a little bit about artificial intelligence. We've talked a lot a bit about artificial intelligence. Okay, we've, we've talked a lot. Well, today it is a pleasure for me to have a former student, whether he will admit to being a former student or not. But John Mark Joseph, I always, always John Mark, I think you may be going just by John now mostly. Depends. I'm good with all three first. But I, but I, yeah, Parents I like, and professors can get away with that, I love right? that. But, but has been very successful, uh, works with this on a daily basis, really, mm-hmm. in his job, and has been at Lockheed Martin for 13 years. 13 years now. So, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's, it, it really is a pleasure to have him here. And one of the things we want to kind of talk about, again, is this idea of artificial intelligence, which obviously is also machine learning. But we're going to really kind of focus today on the business applications, kind of the risks, the rewards, where it might go. And so um, I'm, I'm just going to kind of turn you loose on this to begin with and just say, how did business get to where we are today with this technology, and why do you think we got there? Imagine for a second a triangle that uh, you have, and I think most of it could be filled up with the base of it being almost uh, data prep, right? Um, a lot of analysts in almost any sector you're working in today have so much data mm. everywhere. Um, I think just the common person who's not even working in a business has so much data in their household today. Um, Internet of Things, if you've heard of that yeah. kind of phrasing. Um, how many machines do you have that could tell you the weather? You probably have 50 in your house. And back then, you probably had just the newspaper. Um, but that's the same way it is in business. And I think that with a lot of analysts and what they're supposed to do to help make decisions is they have to wrangle all that data. It's floating around. It is everywhere. Sometimes in duplicate, sometimes not as accurate anymore, uh, but they have to find the right kind of data. Uh, then the data analysis on the very top of that pyramid, it's the smallest part. Um, that's, I think, where analysts in the business area have found themselves today, where the, the college degree that they got and the business decisions they were trained to make are sometimes the smallest parts of their job. A lot of it has been, how do I get the right data to make those decisions? The way that we find the technology being used today with AI and machine learning is that it's kicking that triangle upside down, where now the data analysis is going to be the majority of people's day-to-day life because the data prep and that time frame is shortening so much. And I think the businesses are recognizing that, um, that that is a key decision maker for getting ahead of their competition, is the workforce that they already have the skill sets that they already have, the degrees and education that they already have in their workplace being utilized to its fullest. And I think this is one of the tools that's doing that for them. What would you think if, if you were, if you had a student that was in high school now, a year or two away from college, what would be one of the one or two strongest majors you might again depending on what that person's interested in Mm -hmm. but if they think they might want to go into business and where business is going Mm -hmm. what major might you recommend now that wouldn't have been uh, at the top of your mind let's say 15 years ago i know this is going to sound weird but pre-law interesting and uh, my my father's a lawyer i lived with a lawyer all my life (laughs) 
And that's kind of made me design myself to not want to be a lawyer. But I've seen what he's had to go through. But one of the interesting things with education and lawyers was logical arguments. You know, A plus B equals C. That's mathematical, but you can turn that into a logic. And that logic can lead to how to ask questions and maybe even backtrack to where you already know the answer, but you need to find the question. That mindset of asking the right questions for a person who's graduating high school in a couple years, that skill set might be more beneficial than even programming. Interesting. With the way things are going, is how do you ask the right question for the answer that you might already know or need to know? So, wait a minute. Okay, I am not completely surprised by your answer, but I didn't see the direction and the logic behind the answer. So as we're talking about AI, and we're talking about this new frontier, correct? And Mm -hmm. it's really not that new, but, you know, more in our face frontier, and the use of it, and who owns the intellectual property of of the artificial intelligence. I thought you were going there. You know, is there that opportunity down the road? And I've read articles that are basically saying... Who really owns all of this information? Mm-hmm. And so that's where I thought you were going to go with that. I think that's interesting. I would think legal, for the reason I just talked about, mm-hmm. too, might, you know, I think you <laughs> can get two for one on that deal, on that education, possibly. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it is a question because we, we, there's never been, I mean, probably the start around 2006, 2007 was when people found out you can monetize information. I think more more than just the regular consulting extent and education, but just how much information people give out freely mm-hmm. and, and how you can use that. Uh, I think we're still figuring that out, but I think the businesses have made some good models on how they can claim that they own the data. Um, some EULAs that people might just skip over and sign, but uh, that is another question, topic that we can talk about is... Uh, who is the artist when you generate AI art? <laughs> Who owns that? I mean, I, and you know, when you speak to it, when you use the word, the term art, mm. um, we have a creative director that I work very closely with um, within the, the business units that we manage. And she is an independent. So she's a partner that has her own business. And she shared something with me, and I was absolutely stunned. She works for um, a shoe manufacturer and they were doing their typical fall catalog and she said the customer asked for an image of these these boots but it had to be raining and all she could find in you know all the places where you purchase imagery right as a creative designer um i could find the wet street but i couldn't find things falling and she had to put their boot in it and it was all ai generated and it was just beautiful Mm -hmm. and it was brilliant and it didn't take her a whole lot of time Mm. versus having her having to kind of craft in raindrops you know at Mm -hmm. whatever pace just fascinating that's what i'm excited about is where where are the lines in this where are the lines in the sand yeah i know one of not directly related to that but as far as the imagery Mm -hmm. one of the i i like to in my spare time I'm not sure what that actually <laughs> he has is. No but, spare time. But in my spare time, I like to write like fantasy fiction. And the one book I've been working on for a long time, I had described 
this particular house that this particular character lived in. And so I'm on ChatGPT, you know, and I've got the one where I also get the the illustration along with it. I won't go in and name all the different names, but it'll automatically do that. And so I put in a description of this house that I wanted into the model and asked it to create an illustration of that. And it's just this beautiful with all of the background and the, you know, it's got the trees and the bush and it's right down to the exact type of roof that I wanted. And and it, it did it in like 30 seconds. And it, it's now my screensaver on my home computer. I, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the same example now for catalogs. Mm-hmm. They'll promote how you can do these on catalogs. Mm-hmm. And so... And, and I just want to say that refers back to my my statement on what high schoolers should probably focus on. I'm assuming that you might have used something like Mid Journey of a, of an AI tool. That that all revolves around you asking it a question to generate what your mindscape yeah. is trying to put as a picture. Yeah. And, and as a writer, I think you can understand like that logic behind your sentences to lead up to a picture like that. The AI is going to be worth it. And that comes also down to business decisions on how do you extract the answer from AI. No, you are absolutely right. Because I have had to experiment over the last several months on how to ask the question to get the kind of results that I want. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a skill set. It's a skill set. And I encourage everyone, if you, want to, if you want to know what we're talking about, go to MidJourney. It's a free program mm-hmm. that you can test out. It's an AI image software. Um, it uses Discord as its main UI right now, but I know they're working on their website. But you can go out there and ask a, a few questions. Just say, I want, a, I want a hot dog made out of balloons or something. And you can start seeing what images come up. Now try to make it more accurate. Try to ask more succinct questions. Change the ratio on it. Change the art style on it. You're going to learn that there's a lot of different ways to ask questions. Yeah, it, and, and I have done some experimenting as well. And being in marketing... Of course, mm. and brand particular, we, if we need to provide a solution, we spend all day long asking questions. So I, I know we need to take a break here, no, right? No, we do. This will be a good time for a break, but I hope you're enjoying this. Don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to the Bull and Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and Today is a special guest. Uh, I've got John Mark Joseph here, works at Lockheed Martin, has been uh, knee-deep, maybe even neck-deep in artificial intelligence and machine learning now for a number of years. Very much so. And really has a lot of a lot of really good insights that I'd like to share with the audience. One thing I, I had to touch base on when you were talking about the information and who controls it. I'm going to go back all the way back to about 1997, so I'm going to go back over 25 years. All right. And at the time, what I was doing, and it was working with website, and I made the, the comment to students at that time when I was up at the University of Northern Iowa that I felt one of the biggest opportunities for industry was to have somebody come up with, and I, think, I don't think I made this term up. I'm pretty sure I actually heard it somewhere else, but it was the term infomediary. That was that the need to have an information intermediary mm. that would have the trust of the public that would be willing to give them their information that they then would allow them to share, uh, a, in this case, an email contact that I was talking about to companies that would pay to get specific targets of what they might want. 
And I said, you've got to think about it. It's got to be, it may be a bank, it may be something like the Visa or MasterCard, but it had to be an institution that had the complete trust that they weren't just going to send this out to everybody and that it would never, their other information would never be given to them. They would simply then send out their ad from the company to that list that they said matched their list. So the other company would never have your email, but the infomediary would match up their demographics and everything that in their information based on your buying patterns on things you would be interested in and you would then get that marketing from them. So you had somebody in the middle that would share the information, but your information as a customer would never go to where you would get spammed by somebody if like you do now when you mm-hmm. register on their website. And and talking about the control of the information. Cuz I did that for example on a real basic with my bookstore when I saw what customers bought, as soon as I saw another article or another book that somebody wrote in that genre, I would send them an email. You might be interested in this. Take a look. Now, it never came from the publisher. It was just I thought, since they were one of my customers, this might be a book they'd be interested in. Customer service. It was you customer were doing service. It for customer I was service. doing it for customer right. service. But it dawned on me that if you had an infomediary that would, would accumulate and basically own this information... And, and I think now maybe that's almost at a much broader scale. Is that something that is going to come down the pike that's really going to be hard to control? Yeah, I think that's a, also a good way of looking at it from a business perspective. Right now, a lot of businesses don't have teams of people like I'm a part of that have to parse through that data and, 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 and answer the questions, right? So yeah. if you think about it, a lot of teams that are working on AI are kind of like the middleman. Like you were saying, like you're seeing what your customers are wanting. The customers are um, responding to a demand within the company for parts of information. So, for example, um, say your accounts receivable or accounts payable group wants to learn um, a faster way of finding out when vendors are going to pay out their invoices. Well, they might not have all the technology. They might have to reach out to a team like ours to do those calculations for them, give them back the data, um, all secure, right? Yep. And then they can answer the questions to maybe their own executives. So we're kind of like that intermediary already in the business world in that landscape that you described. Yeah, and I think that it hadn't dawned on me until what you just said just now that that that's really where it's it's going to, and that's mm-hmm. something that wouldn't have been possible a number of years ago. I mean, it just mm-hmm. it, it wasn't. We didn't exist. <laughs> it didn't exist. Yeah, we didn't exist. So it's it's we're kind of in that new area where we're using the building blocks of what's led to current AI, um, and now we're seeing it executed in in a more, like I said, that triangle way yeah. where the data in prep is... is the broader. Yeah, the data prep is loosening to where it's going to be a much smaller part of the job, and the data analysis is going to be the one. It's going to be big. So I think that leads to, to the obvious question of how do you find and retain qualified learning talent? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's the one thing that I think we back probably in 2016 were trying to figure out when we were interviewing candidates. And I think um, it goes, it, it's really interesting. You remember those Google interview questions that came up that were so random sometimes? Like, how do, you, how do they put the M on the M&M? And they would ask these questions in interviews. I can understand that a lot more now in the sense of we're looking for candidates there's not like an AI degree or a machine learning yeah. degree right now that's like in the financial world that we're kind of like looking for 100%. But when the candidates come in, they'll have that kind of financial background so that they can have the building blocks to ask the right questions. 
But the interview sometimes revolves itself around how do they answer or process a question. Mm. It's the chain of thought, I think, is is the most important part. So I remember asking an interview question around the lines of, uh, I think I read this in a book somewhere. It was almost like you're in the middle of Chicago. Uh, how many piano tuners are in a three-mile radius of you? And it's almost like no human being is going to be thinking about that on their way to work. They have to do it on the spot. Well, that's kind of exactly the kind of questions we get from an AI perspective or machine learning. What's your first three steps to figure out that problem? I think that's how we're finding a lot of our candidates and, and seeing how their train of thought is. That's interesting. That That's fascinating because it it's not as much about personality as it is about the intellectual well, the intellectual process, regardless of what your environment was, mm-hmm. regardless of your upbringing, mm-hmm. all of those things really go away. It comes down to how are you ticking, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I'm sitting here going, okay, you're in Chicago. How big is Chicago? How many people are there? Roughly how many pianos would be there as a percentage and how many piano tuners might you need for that? You missed a step. You forgot about the bars because that's where they are, bars and oh, hotels. Oh, yeah, and you also have them there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that's how I'm th- – as soon as you said that, I'm starting to try to distill from the large numbers, all right, what kind of probabilities might I end up with for a number that makes sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, one, of the, one of the funniest answers I had um, for that was uh, I just Google it. Which is 100% fine. Uh, you know something? I'm just saying. It I can tell you up, the age but, yeah. of that person, yeah. too. Yeah. Because uh, seriously, how many times have have we asked a question? I have, I've gotten that answer more than once. I, literally. Mm-hmm. And it, but now it's spread past that one specific demographic, and it's really, really bled into the other demographic. Now I find myself, well, I don't know, let's just look it up. I mean, mm-hmm. we don't need to know this stuff. And, and, and Googling it, it's, it's really funny because... I wonder how many, I guess we could Google this too. Yeah, I was just thinking. I wonder what percentage of people know what Google, why Google picked Google and what the real first Google actually was. Mm. That's a great um, thought. And I would venture to guess in our audience, uh, in this room alone, I can tell you, I don't know. You really don't? Tim, do you know our producer? I know about the large mathematical number that was called a Google. That's but... the that's the that's why they picked it. <laughs> that, that is it, what I've heard too. A Google a was spelled G O O G L E. That was a Google, and it was actually made up by a math teacher, believe it or not, when he had kids asking what was the biggest number, and he came up with Google, and it's a one followed by a hundred zeros. Okay, that's definitely going to make the podcast uh, golden tidbits that we pull out of everything. That's like that's probably going to be part of our promotion on social platforms. That's awesome. So supposedly, now again, I don't know if she'd ever prove this, but supposedly then the, the individuals that started Google mm-hmm. wanted it to be because there were just hundreds of millions and more data than anywhere else, and they knew about the word Google because it had now come into, and they just changed the spelling to OL, but that's why Google is called Google. Mm-hmm. That's the same story I've heard, too. Yeah. So I, I was pretty sure you had heard it. Yeah that's, yeah. that's the same kind of story I've heard. In fact, you may have heard it from me in the classroom at I some prom- point. It was actually in my advanced speech class at Southeastern. Okay. So it was someone did a whole speech on that. I'll never forget it. <laughs> well, okay. Let's, let's real quickly set up what I want to talk about in our next segment here. I, I want to give you a minute to think about this because we've got now how do we get the talent What do we need to do? How do they ask the questions? But I think one of the most important issues is going to be how do we ensure that these systems are fair, 
are they ethical, mm. and are they accountable? Oh, okay. All right, we'll talk about that. So I, I really would like to, to get into your ideas on, on what we can actually do to make some of these things work. Because if you think about how, how these pro- AI programs gather information, it would also be easy to build in biases along the way based on different models or different companies, intentionally or unintentionally. We'll have to definitely talk about biases. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's where we're going to go next. So stay with us. We will be right back in just one moment. Welcome back to Bolin's Alley edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bolin, and as I mentioned, I have... As a special guest today, John is here, works at Lockheed Martin, and we I kind of set him up just before this break to talk about some of the you know, ethical issues and, and things like that. And and I know you've got a, a topic that we were talking about on the break that I think would be really, really fascinating. Yeah, we'll, we'll start with just like you were saying. I think there's implicit biases, which I think we're all familiar, are actions that our brain takes that we are actively knowing I am being biased about this person or this subject. Um, I think a lot of there's a lot of popularity around the, the verbiage uh, unconscious bias, where you might be making biased quick decisions, but not consciously knowing you are, and that there's a whole slew of reasons for that and why that happens. One example I, I think I think talking about just general biases, I think we can all relate to, and it's kind of a fun little story for a business case, is Amazon um, coming out explaining how they completely failed at their HR AI model that they set up. And the question they were asking was, taking the thousands and tens of thousands of resumes that they've been given and the ones that the employees that they've hired, could they make an AI model that would rate a resume from a one-star to a five-star so that their HR team could then sort through the resumes and find the best qualified candidates because it was taking forever to find highly qualified people when you're doing it with just human eyeballs, right? So what they did is they put in the history of their past performances of a lot of these employees, um, their gender, their age, when they started with the company, what departments they were in, and then they kind of said, okay, AI, now that you know the highly skilled employees at Amazon and what their resumes look like, look at the new resumes and try to relate them to like a five-star product, right? And so we can kind of shortlist them. Well, what they immediately found out was Amazon's AI completely disregarded every woman resume. They, it just took out all the women. It only showed men. And if a man went to a woman's school, it would take it out. <laughs> they, would, they would get kicked out too. And the reason for that was when it looked at the amount of vacation days women took at Amazon for maternity leave, it was like they don't work as hard. And that was baked into a model. Now, that might have been unconscious bias because I don't think the AI people at Amazon were like, well, we don't want to hire women anymore. But they asked an open-ended question that the AI filled in as best as it could, and it just decided women were not right for Amazon's workplace. So they kind of had to scrap that from and, and you know start over, and that's where I get back to those questions of how are you going to ask this technology the question to get the answer that you want. I was thinking that actually went a different way because originally I was thinking about a lot of times one thing I'm familiar with is it, particularly in financial data, I'm looking at so many things that I'm trying to model when I'm using machine learning that I get really great predictability in sample. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But all of a sudden it won't predict anything out of sample Mm -hmm. because I've I've got it geared so much to just predict what's there that it's – 
it's not random anymore. I'm not, I'm not getting any useful information for prediction from it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where some of the other biases that we were talking about kind of come into play. So with machine learning, it's referring to the AI is referring to data or a sample of data that is timely in a sense of you're either looking at, we'll just say the last month of data from a subset or three months or six months or a year. And as a human, you have something what's called tribal knowledge of the data probably. So if you're in the workplace and you've been on the team for a few years, you think back to different examples a couple years ago, um, and you think, you know what, that data from two years ago really helped me make a decision that I had last week. And you might think that, that that, that experience might have helped you. When you start playing with machine learning, it might be um, too much data in your sample that might make what we call AI hallucinate an answer or make up something that should not be there. And you really have to kind of test with your model, how much data should I really feed into it for it to make a decision? Because if you give too much, you might be answering the wrong question that, mm. you're, not, that you're not asking. And I know that there's been, we were having a conversation with semen uh, engineers and they were talking about their modeling for machine learning and they found out that this was like a billing question that they had. They found out that um, most of the year, the, the best sample size was about two to three months, except at year end, because mm -hmm. that just threw off their whole model because the amount of work people do at year end for their company, it just it did not work anymore. So they had, to, they had to play around with it, go to four to five months, average it all in kind of there. So you, the biases that we as humans look at, even when it comes from time from a data perspective, we have to very much keep in mind while we're making these models. I don't think I would have ever thought about there being a seasonality to that kind of information. Gosh, when you said, so I'm intently listening over here in the corner because this is so fascinating. But when you talked about because the end of the year threw things off, mm -hmm. my mind immediately went to were people working more or were they working less? Both. Because I could... Yeah, and I so that was such a beautiful illustration because what is the real bias there? That that's odd to me because in our business I I don't know I don't even know in our business if I could answer that. I know how I am personally, but I think it's fascinating because it could go either way. Extreme either way. Mm -hmm. Right? It could. Yeah. It could. Interesting. Well, I think in in financial markets in general uh, this is just going to be an in general comment. Anytime you're around holiday seasons or when uh, overall volume might be slower, you know, more people on vacation, more people on holidays, not as much activity, I think smaller pieces of information can has more dramatic movements in the market because it's more thinly traded. Mm -hmm. So I think that's another issue when you're looking at information, let's say in financial markets. If you include a lot of data from times when it's thinly traded, you're going to predict more volatility off of a off of a piece of information, new information than you would at other times of the year. That's going to vary versus quarterly earnings versus time. Quarterly earnings I time. mean, that's going to go a, a different direction right. too. Yeah. So I think yeah. time bias is really time bias is, is a it, real factor, and yeah. it goes the opposite way. Sometimes people think the holy grail is instant data, automatic data. Get, plug plug the machine learning into the tables in the background. Just give me the live data. Well, to human is error. Sometimes it might be good to wait a week to see if the accountant's going back and, and maybe change some of the debits and credits in some areas, too. So the biases of thinking the fastest data is the best data also is something you have to watch mm. out for. That's a great point.
That's a great point. Well, as we look at, at AI and machine learning as, as it's becoming ubiquitous, right? I mean, it's, it is. It's a toolbox at this point. It's a toolbox. Yeah. So where, where are some of the opportunities? We, you know, I know you, you mm-hmm. mentioned some of these possibilities before we, were, before we went on. I think predictive analytics is, is one of the biggest possibilities, and I think most executives could see that business case entering their workforce um, first. Like if, if a company is not using AI, where would it maybe pop up first? Probably predictive analytics, especially on how to get cash faster into the business. And that could be customer-based or that could be business process-based, right, or, or you know thinking about how long does it take to process an invoice in your business structure and then having AI uh, even map out how it's being currently done today and then give suggestions on maybe some turnaround time, maybe making that faster and such. So I would probably see that as being one of the main key points that executives would probably make a decision on, how to get cash faster. Get cash faster. (laughs) So think of your processes that revolve around cash and then some of the tribal knowledge that you might have on your teams that – so-and-so kind of just can put their finger in the air and feel where the wind is blowing. I think that's what people want to try to replicate with technology. That's a, 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 I think that's a tough one because a lot of what I've done over the last probably 30 years when I have time to do it is, while I love finance and everything I work is, is number crunching and investments and that sort of thing, but it's very much behavioral. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. I mean, I've just I, – I was – talking about behavioral finance when nobody would publish behavioral finance. Mm-hmm. Um, and now it's everybody wants to talk about behavioral finance. How do you see AI mod, doing a better job of modeling behaviors? Is there a way to try to do that? Yes. I was trying to put you on the spot where I couldn't get a yes answer. I, I mean, <laughs> I would say yes but also how I think that there's a lot of theories on to use that emotional sense of humanity and try to predict through Mm -hmm. behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, But if they're not giving you that data in a certain way, how do you get that data? And I think YouTube's probably the closest way of doing that with their algorithms. Okay. If they know when you're having a good day or a bad day and they can change your mood depending on what they want to do. That's, that's that's kind of scary, isn't it? Uh, but how do you do that yeah, in the we, business world? Just, I don't know yet. We just, yeah. traipsed up, we just traipsed up real close to a real scary barrier, I, I think. Uh, are we ready to break? Because that one's going to make people think. No, no. Her. This is a great place to take a break and think about what, what do you think we should never try to do with AI mm. that is almost too dangerous? I, let's, let's bring that up after we take this break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Bowling Alley's edition of Beyond Dollars and Cents. I'm your host, Dr. Lyle Bowling, again joined today with John Joseph. Really glad to have you here. We're, I think in this last segment, let's talk a little bit about sign of the downside or the risk mm-hmm. of business, and then maybe even go even a little beyond just mm-hmm. because there is certainly, as, as Robin mentioned, there really is a fear factor involved in, in, in just sort of this whole AI uh, I, I go back again, as I mentioned, I like to write and read a lot of science fiction fantasy. I, I just go back to all of Isaac Asimov's Foundation oh, series, I love that. right? I love that I can, series. I can go back to, I mean, I've read everything he ever wrote, I think. Mm-hmm. But again, a lot of what he would talk about would be that, that it wasn't artificial intelligence then, but his was mostly around the robots. Correct. But, and but, he put 
he put, I guess, the rules yes. and the laws. The three laws, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know? um, and I think that was very smart of him because I think he could see where it was going. Yeah, and, and I think my part of the fear factor is is that we don't have sort of three laws for artificial intelligence. There's some, there's some groups that are trying to encourage a group effort in agreement on what those laws should be. But right now it's kind of the Wild West. And you always will have lawbreakers. And you should sometimes, depending on what laws we're talking about, to help pioneer new things. Mm. But I think just like Isaac Asimov saw and we see in this room, uh, there are examples of um, ethics that maybe should not be crossed just for the sake of exploration. Give me a couple of examples from, let's stay in the business universe at this point. So let's see, um, patterns are one of the biggest things that you can see with AI and machine learning. That is definitely one of their strong suits. If I were to want to have maybe a fast turnaround time on maybe a faulty invoice that might have had a few thousand dollars higher than it should, AI might tell me the best time to send it to that vendor. Mm. Maybe the vendor who has the analyst, I know, takes Christmas vacation at a certain time of the year every year. And in my model, I can say, I probably should send that invoice the day before vacation to a person I don't even work with at a company I have no involvement in to say, they probably won't, they'll probably have the least amount of time to check that invoice. And I know they don't have backup. And I know that they're more probable of just rubber stamping this and getting it through the system. Particularly if it's near year end. Particularly if it's near year end, that probably should not be. <laughs> you should be modeling that, right? Exactly, and especially not using the right invoice amount. Of course, that's a that's a regular that's business. A, that's ethic. a whole other. But you're, you can see how technology can compound and expand an already unethical situation into a much larger macro unethical under um, under the radar situation. And I think one of the other things that that I've always been a little bit worried about is as you get beyond just business, let's say you get into governmental use mm. uh, of different types of use of AI mm-hmm. and machine learning, what do you see as some of the biggest risks, maybe even red flags there? Probably, you know, not free speech is free speech, but also free free thought and what engagements you're getting on online. So talking about governmentally, I think that it's very obvious that you have a profile on a different um, website. That profile is directed towards you. You probably log on to the same profile every single time. If the government ever felt like they had that almost facial recognition of your online self, they could then say, you know what, YouTube, the algorithm, they're having a bad day. Maybe suggest these types of ideas to help them feel better. Okay, we can see through the algorithm they're not clicking on those. Let's try plan B. I don't think we want mm. governmental um, influences like that to make our culture homogenous in thought. I think that one of the best things about our culture is that it is the melting pot. There's a ton of different cultures here. They're not homogenous. Sometimes we rub heads against, or shoulders against each other and stuff, but the ideas that come out of it and the conversations we have is 
some of our strongest strengths for this country. And I don't want I don't want technology like this to I would probably say not enhance it, but discourage that. Yeah, I think there ought to be a way, and this is off the top of my head, which is always dangerous, but it seems to me on the flip side of that, there ought to be a way that you could um, use artificial intelligence when you get people across cultures together Mm -hmm. to find ways for more understanding of different cultures that Mm -hmm. could bring... um, bring more uh, understanding. You're not going to change people's opinions per, per se about their culture or where they come from, but where it isn't um, us against them. You mm-hmm. know, the, the old saying is, is that you can think of a particular culture as your enemy until you start to actually meet people there. And then all of a sudden you realize people are people. Is there a, in a simplistic way, is there a way that artificial intelligence might help people see each other to be just people? I think so. I think music is a good one that AI music has been really good at transferring this singer's voice onto this type of culture music that that singer might not ever touch. But once you start putting those together, you have two groups of people that might actually enjoy the same song and share thoughts about it. Okay. So I would hope on the hopeful side, you would see some things like that. Exactly. And I, and I think wrapping this back to the business arena, um, thoughts on, how to do ethical accounting. I think a lot of companies are coming together, benchmarking each other on how they're doing AI and machine learning. And I think that they're coming with a lot of business cases on, you know, hey, here's something I messed up on. How do you think you would help? And I I think that those kind of conversations probably happened in the 80s and 90s when the technological revolution happened with like, you know, having servers and computers in the workplace and getting rid of um, a lot of the handmade accounting. Uh, there was best practices shared amongst companies then because it was kind of like a renaissance. Um, I think we're going to be seeing that sort of renaissance where a lot of bridges are going to be being made with different companies. Like right now, Lockheed Martin is partnering with NVIDIA and other commercial um, companies that have that kind of experience where those bridges won't, weren't normally there. Um, and I know a lot of our competitors are doing the exact same thing. I think that almost every business has an opportunity to learn from each other a lot more and have Um, much more conversations than they used to. Just like you were saying with different cultures, businesses could do the exact same thing because at the end of the day, a lot of businesses are focusing on cash and how to get more of it and what the market's going to do. And I think a lot of businesses want to talk about that because it is new technology and people are wanting to talk about it. And I think one of the the other areas that I've, where this might or might not come into conflict um, is that I've often talked about, even though I'm a, Pure capitalist, okay? Mm -hmm. But I've often thought that it's not, in my opinion, simply my opinion, that if you do everything you can as a company to maximize your profits for your shareholders, Mm -hmm. that you might not be behaving in a way that is optimal for your employees or your customers or your community. And that Mm -hmm. I have often said that, yes, it is important to have the bottom line for your shareholders. I'm not saying it's not, but I have tried to make the argument that if you do a, if you take really good care of your customers and you take really good care of your suppliers and you pay attention and are, are in your community, you're part of your community, not outside your community, that the side benefits that come in from lower turnover and more happier 
customers and you're not, you know, you're going to keep your employee and your community is going to embrace you. That in the end, even though you're spending some time and money in those areas, your overall bottom line ends up better than it would have been if you only worried about just the business part of that. Yes. And, and, and I think you're touching on a subject that we could talk a whole episode about, which is like behavioral AI implementation in the workplace. Yes. Is that, is that feasible, I guess? Yes, 100% it's feasible. I do it every day when I'm working with different functional teams. Um, their jobs aren't going anywhere. We can't, there's a whole case studies I can show about bank tellers versus the ATM machine when they were implemented. And let me ask you. When the ATM machines were integrated into banks in the 60s and 70s, did bank tellers go away? No, no. they're still there. They and I'll tell you what, there. there's a whole story behind that on what was happening, what the predictions were. There's a lot of data, and I usually refer to that as to where it's coming for businesses right now. So if your business is looking at AI or machine learning, try to embrace it, take a step back, and realize that the accounting and finance people before you were hired had skill sets that are no longer required when you were hired. And there's a whole history of accounting and finance we can go to. Um, here's a quick question for you. What was the number one skill set after math and accounting that accounting people had to have in the workplace before the 1985, 1970, 1985? I'm going to guess you just had to have ability to attention to detail. Handwriting. Okay. Yes. That and, yes. And, and no one thinks about that anymore, but every accounting and finance person before you in the workplace today had to have good handwriting. Now we're kind of all looking like doctor's handwriting. So everyone's okay with it. <laughs> that's, I, uh, I absolutely, that's absolutely true. And, you know, there are so many things we didn't touch on today that, that John, I'm going to invite you back for a future session here because I think there's a whole world of where we can start to explore this if you're willing to come back. I'm willing to come back and explore it with you. And so I just want to thank everybody out there for joining us today. And again, if you would like to see more like this podcast, please go to Bowen's Alley at alleninvestments.com. Thanks for joining us for the ride today. Have a great day. The opinions voiced in this podcast are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult with an appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. Guests appearing on the show and their respective companies are not affiliated with LPL Financial and Allen & Company. Investment advisory services offered through Allen & Company of Florida, LLC, Allen & Co., and its affiliate LPL Financial, LLC, LPL, registered investment advisors. Securities offered through LPL, member FINRA, SIPC.